made the mistake this week of announcing that next week uh, I will be talking about the mud flood. And I find that whenever I do that, I get less people to show up the week before I talk about it because they're like, well, if you're not going to talk about the mud flood this week, then I'm going to wait to show up next week when you talk about it. But we had the we had the discussion a little bit in the administrative group about Thanksgiving. And Dave is the first person who mentioned this. And I was like, I was Dave says something sometimes that really blows my socks off. And he said he said that he suspects that Thanksgiving is residue of Sukkot uh, during the Millennial Kingdom. And I was just like, dude. And it, it's very much like a Sukkot kind of um uh, holiday or feast day. And anyways, all that being said, next Thursday is Thanksgiving. Um, we'll see what kind of crowd we get, but it's appropriate what I'm going to talk about next week, because if you guys, um, if anyone here fondly recalls the Twilight Zone marathon, like I do, I used to love watching the Twilight Zone marathon. It came on CBS and then it got moved to uh, was it the sci-fi channel or something like that with cable but years ago it was cbs and every you know as a kid you know the 80s every i would go turn it on just to watch it and i remember that one episode which I'll, i'm going to talk about probably in the intro next week where the guy in uh it's it's 19 like 17 1920 ish around then the the first world war has just ended and he's backpacking i think he's an american and he's backpacking through the swiss alps or some back roads mountains you know albania or whatever and and he comes upon a monastery and long story short he meets a guy in prison there who the the mocks try to convince him that it's satan that in there you know satan himself and he doesn't believe him he releases him and it turns out he really is satan and and satan you know he, he reveals himself as the devil and he 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 goes off and he feels terrible and what actually starts is the uh the second world war as a re uh, result of that and wow. <laughs> and as a as a as a you know some years ago i started thinking about that episode getting really kind of upset by it because i thought that it's the way it treated morality was uh very almost satanic in a way that you know the twilight zone is telling you well the league of nations was not of satan that was actually good and the united nations also was not of satan that was really good because you know if we can confine satan you know we can do these great things but as soon as he's loose then these wars happen right um but it, it it has reminded me again of the you know of where we're at in history that you know the the big reveal here at the end of the twilight zone we are in an episode of the twilight zone and the big reveal is that satan was released right so anyways with that i think i'm going to get started josh are we yeah josh are we recording yeah we are now okay so it if I sound robotic at any time or I start cutting out, I apologize. I am working with a uh, not the greatest Wi-Fi tonight. As I was mentioning earlier, um, I am I'm staying in a 
we're seeing the RV resort here on the beach, but this is getting into Thanksgiving week and a lot of people are showing up. Uh, the, the type of people that are showing up to come on vacation to be very festive that aren't full-timers, like we're, you know, any timers. And so they'll have a lot of kids that, you know, are just streaming YouTube videos all day and stuff and it kills the Wi-Fi. So we'll see how, if I can survive the next uh, 10 days or so, we've got two Sabbath groups to get through and to Thursday night. I will not be streaming a video of myself tonight for that reason, even though I've been trying to um, do that from now on. But for the next week, I think I'm going to be cutting myself out just to get the clear signal. All right, let's get started. Shalom and welcome to the Unexpected Cosmology. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. I am the creator, main writer, and editor-in-chief of the said magazine. I keep telling you my name week after week, hundreds of of times, if need be, in hopes that that one or two person out there um, on the internet finally stops calling me Joel or Noah. I can always tell when a person is dyslexic by uh, when they call me Leon. Our present destination is the land of Eden, but also the land of Yasharel. And just so you know, we're only making one stop. When the bus reaches its destination, everybody gets off. So which is it? Eden or Israel. The shortest explanation that I can give is that the land of Eden is the land of Yasharel. But how can that be? Well, I'm about to show you. In order to do so, we'll be coming through the Aramaic Targum. Of course, there will be other books utilized. Some of them I do consider scripture, and some of them I don't. One such example of a book which I will be employing tonight, but do not in any way hold up as something resembling scripture or an authority, uh, spiritually speaking, is the legend of the Jews. It should be noted, however, that whenever I do employ legend of the Jews or some of these other reads, it is only to back up what the Aramaic Targum already claims to be true. What I do find fascinating about Legend of the Jews is the ancient knowledge contained within, which might be completely lost to us otherwise. So that, you know, garnishes my attention. The conclusions I am coming to are based upon my readings of scripture, but also the worldview of the ancients. The thing is, if you're not the slightest bit interested in the Aramaic Targum, then nothing I say tonight will have any bearing on how you feel about the topic at hand. Something I should point out is that a good number of us feel as though the land of Eden is actually north of here, not east. It is Zen Garcia's position that paradise, which included the land of Eden, was directly over the center of the earth, which you might call the North Pole, as seen by Mercator's 1595 map. I'm actually going to try to be good tonight and see if I can drop this map into our uh, discussion here real quick before moving on. So you guys can see what I'm talking about. Please don't be too large. Okay, well, we'll start dropping that in there. There we go. Perfect. I'm not trying to pull away from the research uh, at all. In fact, I'd only like to add to it and follow that research through to its next logical conclusion using the same text. Though the position of Eden is kind of insinuated in what I'm going to say tonight, I don't expect it to be directly addressed. What I will be outright admitting, though, without going into further detail, is that the slab of real estate they tell us is modern Israel is not the real historical promised land of Yasharel. In truth, 
I feel that the real Yasharel is north of here, somewhere relating to the center of the earth or wherever Eden is. But that's a discussion for another time. Apologies again if I sound robotic tonight. The Wi-Fi is weak. So let's pray. Self-existent, eternal one, Yahuwah, may we sing your praises night and day from the moment the sun rises in the west to its setting in the east, and then again when the stars appear until they begin to fade. May we never forget you in our thoughts in our, and in our conversations. Be ever present on our lips. You are above every other Elohim on this earth. Creation speaks of your character. From beginning to end, you are unchanging. We find rest and shalom in you alone. Guide us and teach us. Reveal to us the mysteries of your kingdom. We pray all these things in your name, in the name of your son, Yehusha HaMashiach, and the Ruach HaKodesh. Amen. Okay, so I dropped into the chat room tonight, tonight's reading material, or tonight's lecture, which I will be reciting word for word. And the title, this title will not end up in YouTube land because nobody would click on this uh, title for a video. It sounds, dare I say, boring, uh, but I find it really exciting. It's actually, I wrote a biography, and it's called The Altar of Yahuwah a life. So we will be reading tonight from the history as given to us in the Aramaic Targum of the altar of Yahuwah. And this is one of those things, if you blink, you'll miss it. But it's all throughout the Targum and it comes up continually, but they won't, they won't necessarily, you know, tell you. So, um, you know, of course, hopefully everyone is following along or you can just listen. So here we go. Part one, Adam to Noach. Every so often, I managed to whip out a biography. This is another such attempt. The only difference this time around is that I am not writing one about people, per se. Though it is true that notable names do arrive in the narrative, you too shall recognize them, it is only because the location of where they worship Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, is important. Therefore, it should be to us as well. Before you write me a letter with the words inscribed, no duh, be sure to allow, follow this all the way through. Because the coordinates of the altar you see reveals to us the rather bizarre and strange realm that we live in. I like it that way. Now, some people write entire histories regarding their appreciation for architecture, and so I guess you could say I have a thing for unhewn stone. Every paper that I write aims towards one aspiration or another. I suppose this one serves no other purpose except to demonstrate that the mountain of worship, the geographical location of Adam and Hava's habitation after their expulsion from paradise, is none other than Mount Zion. You see, everybody tries to figure out where the land of Eden was in relation to Yasharel, but for whatever reason, Nobody else that I know of has thought to trace the history of the altar which Adam built. Time for a remedy, then. Just so we're clear, because people do happen to read through my work and still end up confused, a straightforward and linear timeline of the altar which Adam built will inform us that the land of Eden and Yasharel, or Israel, are kissing cousins. More specifically, that the mountain of worship and Mount Zion are in fact the same. 
our very first clue can be found with the creation of Adam. This comes from Genesis 2.15 in the Targum. And Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship, where he had been created, and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law and to keep its commandments. I know, I know, nothing about the altar is yet mentioned. Be patient. These things often take time. Presently, however, the mountain that I was talking to you about is accounted for, the mountain of worship. Sure, it doesn't outright say the place of his creation and Mount Zion are the same, but if it were that easy, then everybody would be talking about it now, wouldn't they? What it does say is that Adam was created on the mountain of worship and then placed into the garden. Established. Next clue. This comes from already we're already into it, legends of the Yahudim. The grace and loving kindness of Elohim revealed themselves particularly in his taking one spoonful of dust from the spot where in time to come the altar would stand, saying, I shall take man from the place of atonement that he may endure. Now, Legends of the Jews doesn't have verses. Um, it's kind of archaic that way. Um, but this is Legends of the Yahudim, Book 1. And no, before you say anything, I am not raising Legends of the Yahudim to the level of inspired scripture. We've already covered that. I am simply saying the ancients knew stuff, whereas the internet information age we currently find ourselves in is one of the darkest and muddiest times in human history. Let's be honest. It's the worst. Also, while the text doesn't outright claim the whole of Adam was created on the X marks the spot where the altar would stand, but rather a spoonful of dust, we did learn something. The altar is the same as the place of atonement. Getting closer. Continuing. This comes from the Cave of Treasures. And when he rose at full length and stood upright in the center of the earth... He planted his two feet on that spot whereon was set up the cross of our Redeemer, for Adam was created in Yerushalayim. Again, not scripture, but I'm okay with that. There is a point to our current exercise, and it is this. The ancients agreed. You could argue that the writers of a past millennia were simply making crap up, excuse me for my language, regarding the geography of the world, and that archaeologists know more about them than they did of themselves. But I claim the exact opposite to be true. And here, it couldn't be any clearer. Adam was created on the very ground where Yerushalayim would later stand. The mere fact that Adam stood upright in the center of the earth is yet another clue as to the mutual relationship between Eden and Mount Zion. Breadcrumb saved for another outing, though. I couldn't help but underline it anyways with a nudge and a wink-wink. Some of you will know exactly what I'm hinting at. Moving on. This comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 in the Targum. And Yahuwah Elohim removed him from the Garden of Eden, and he went and dwelt on Mount Moriah to cultivate the ground from which he had been created. After Adam's transgression, where does he return but to the place of his creation, Mount Moriah, which is the same as saying he dwelt upon Mount Zion. The two are inseparable. Yes, I am willing to die on that hill. Before everyone starts squabbling over whether Zion and Moriah are the same or neighboring mountains separated by a narrow valley, 
and how I need to check myself before I wreck myself. I will remind you of the paper that I wrote on the Temple Mount hoax. I also made into a couple of videos, which you can watch on YouTube. Best to give it a read or a view. The temple was built in the city of David and not on top of a Roman fort. In modern times, it is only Zionism which has separated the two locations so as to pull off their rather lame deception. It's so obviously a Roman fort. Everybody seems to buy it hook, line, and sinker, though. Oh, well, they're lost. As a reminder, the mountain of worship, a.k.a. Zion and Moriah, is where Adam was created and then where he and Hava lived with their children for the remainder of their days, specifically in a cave. Adam, the um, Adam and the were the original cave dwellers. Certainly not as cavemen are advertised to us. Their abode is often referred to in Adamic uh, literature as the Cave of Treasures, which tells us they had something spectacular to offer. Ironic, since they never thought in terms of monetary value as the children of Cain did. The following passage informs us where the cave was positioned in relation to the mountain. This comes from 2 Adam and Eve, chapter 10, verses 6 through 7. Then Seth, Eve, and their children came down from the mountain to the cave of treasures. But Adam was the first whose soul died in the land of Eden in the cave of treasures. For no one died before him but his son Abel, who died murdered. So below the mountain then, check, all are within proximity. Just so we're clear, there is no record that I have ever found where Adam is said to have left the land of Eden, not even on a missionary journey, which might be said of Enoch or Noah. Even if he did, though, the land of Eden is where he arrived after being expelled from paradise. And as you can clearly see, it's where he died, in the Cave of Treasures, which also happens to be in the land of Eden. The cave is, in fact, where Adam was commanded to live within the land of Eden immediately after his expulsion. It says so right here. This comes from 1 Adam and Eve, chapter 1, verse 9. And Elohim commanded him to live there in a cave in a rock, the cave of treasures, below the garden. Second Adam and Eve tells us that the cave of treasures is situated directly below the mountain, whereas first Adam and Eve has already established the fact that the same abode was positioned directly below the garden. That, tell, that should tell us that the mountain of worship, aka Zion, is directly beneath paradise. In fact, the Sethites' harmonious relationship with paradise is described to us in the following passage. So where does this come from? This comes from second Adam and Eve, chapter 11, 5 to 13. And I love, I love the book of 2nd uh, Adam and Eve, guys. It's such a good read. Then Seth stood before the body of his father Adam and of his mother Eve and prayed night and day and asked for mercy towards himself and his children. And that when he had some difficult dealing with the child, he would give him counsel. But Seth and his children did not like earthly work, but gave themselves to heavenly things, for they had no other thought than praises, doxologies, and psalms unto Elohim. Seems appropriate if you're living on Mount Zion. Therefore did they at all times hear the voices of angels, praising and glorifying Elohim from within the garden, or when they were sent by Elohim on an errand, or when they were going up to heaven. For Seth and his children, by reason of their own purity, heard and saw those angels. Then again, the garden was not far above them, 
but only some 15 spiritual cubits. Now, one spiritual cubit answers the three cubits of man, altogether 45 cubits. Seth and his children dwelt on the mountain below the garden. They sowed not, neither did they reap. They wrought no food for the body, not even wheat, but only offerings. They ate of the fruit of the trees, well-flavored, that grew on the mountain where they dwelt. It seems like a lot of righteous people in this in the Bible and Scripture were vegetarians. Just a side note. Then Seth often fasted every 40 days, as did also his eldest children. For the family of Seth smelled the smell of the trees in the garden when the wind blew that way. They were happy, innocent, without sudden fear. There was no jealousy, no evil action, no hatred among them. There was no animal passion. From no mouth among them went forth either foul words or curse, neither evil counsel nor fraud. For the men of that time never swore, but under hard circumstances when men must swear, they swore by the blood of Abel the just. But they constrained their children and their women every day in the cave to fast and pray and to worship the Most High Elohim. They blessed themselves on the body of their father Adam and anointed themselves with it. Second Adam and Eve, chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. A lengthy passage, but the journey was worth it. No, I checked. 45 cubits is only 0.01 of a mile. So I would say that's within proximity. Wouldn't you agree? On an especially smooth day, I can peek over the fence of my neighbor and smell their flower petals too. Indeed, if my neighbors were angels, I would probably enjoy listening to their hymns. Watching them descend and then ascend to heaven again would be a trip in and of itself. Yes, the Sethites were that close. Now that we have established that fact, that the top of the mountain was connected, though disjointed, with paradise, we are introduced to the altar. The very reason you arrived, or I guess I should say the very reason I wrote this, to learn something about a day in the life of unhewn stone. We read from First Adam and Eve, chapter 23, verse 4, Then Adam and Eve took stones and placed them in the shape of an altar, and they took leaves from the trees outside the garden, which, uh, with which they wiped from the face of the rock the blood they had spilled. There it is, the altar which Adam built. Correction, the altar which Adam and Hava built. We should probably acknowledge the lack of tools needed for its construction. This is keeping in line with Torah, which commands in Exodus chapter 20, And the altar of earth you shall make unto me, and shall sacrifice thereon your ascending smoke offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep, and your oxen. In all places where, where I record my name, I will come unto you, and I will bless you. And if you will make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you lift up your tool upon it, you have polluted it. Adam and Hava knew exactly what they were doing in the building of what one might call a crude monument. Not at all an accident. Not even Yahuwah needed to tell them how to go about doing it. And that is because we've already read in Targum Genesis that they were made to dwell in the Garden of Eden, to do service in the law, and to keep its commandments. If I highlighted the passage now, it's only because I left it alone the first time, wondering if anybody would notice. Adam and Hava knew the law, probably backwards and forwards. As kingdom priests, it would have been their obligation to go about with the business of repentance. And thus, the altar of Yahuwah, a life, begins. Another source takes the same account, but then adds a juicy detail to it. 
follow along. So this comes from Legends of the Yahudim again. This gets a little, a little shady here. The first time Adam witnessed the sinking of the sun, he was also seized with anxious fears. And this, this is backed up in the book of Adam and Eve, by the way. It happened at the conclusion of the Sabbath, and Adam said, Woe is me for my sake, because I sinned. The world is darkened, and it will again become void and without form. Thus will be executed the punishment of death which Elohim has pronounced against me. All the night he spent in tears, and Eve too wept as she sat opposite him. And I, I have to point out here, I just picked up on this, that he, uh, he recognizes that the earth would become without form again because of his sin. That's, that's I, really interesting. I never picked up on that. Anyways, all the night he spent in tears, and Eve too wept as she sat opposite to him. When day began to dawn, he understood that what he had deplored was but the course of nature, and he brought an offering unto Elohim, a unicorn whose horn was created before his hoofs, and he sacrificed it on the spot on which later the altar was to stand in Yerushalayim, Legends of the Yahudim. Hmm, not so sure about this one. The only way a unicorn could be sacrificed on the altar is this is if it were a clean animal. Try to find an occasion anywhere in scripture before Moshe, even before Abraham, where an unclean animal is sacrificed. That's Torah. In the instance of a unicorn, it would chew its cud and its hooves would be split by necessity. Not very horse-like. But much of what we know about unicorns are probably wrong anyway. Perhaps the unicorn was more of a goat or a deer-like creature, maybe even a gazelle. Oh, so I checked. The lady in the unicorn tapestries, which I personally visited in Paris, depicts the creature with a cloven hoof. Kind of makes you wonder. And I'm going to take the opportunity because I'm going to try to start dropping really neat-looking pictures into here. Um, just wanted to show you guys the really awesome... Because I'm going to take this commercial break to talk about unicorns right now. Uh, this is actually the the tapestries in in Paris of the line and the unicorn, and it just makes me wonder if they're Millennial Kingdom era. Um, there we go. The one I just dropped in is the really popular one. Uh, there's I think five different tapestries, if I recall right, um, and they're all depicting the different senses. And then the bottom one there, she is uh, kindly stroking the horn of the unicorn. And you can see the lion's eyes really wide in there. I'll let you guys use your imagination what's happening there. All right, moving on. Moving a little further along on the timeline, the first year of the third Jubilee, to be precise, according to the Book of Jubilees, Cain and Havel place an offering upon the same altar. This comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 in the Targum. And it was at the end of days, on the 14th of Nisan, that Cain brought of the produce of the earth, the seed of cotton or lime, an oblation of first things before Yahuwah. And Abel brought of the first things of the flock and of their fat. And it was pleasing before Yahuwah. And he gave his countenance to Abel and to his oblation. But to Cain and to his oblation, he gave no countenance. And Cain was angered greatly, and the features of his face were downcast. 
Sure, we never read anything about Cain and Abel offering their sacrifices upon the altar which Adam and Hava built, per se. Nor does it even mention an altar. You figure there had to be one, though. An altar is implied. Torah dictates an altar of unhewn stone, especially considering how the 14th of Nisan is Passover. Why else would Cain and Abel attempt an offering on that day? Not a coincidence. Cain offered a Passover lamb, which is, um, I'm sorry, that's actually a little misprint there. Actually, it's, uh, it's Abel, that Passover lamb, which is the same thing as saying the Torah abides. Meanwhile, Cain had problems, several of them, depending upon which text you read. Cain wanting his twin sister, Lulua, who also happened to be Abel's betrothed wife as his own, for starters, not good. Probably a part of Yahuwah's divine plan, seeing as how Lulua may have been the seed of the serpent, but still not good. In every case, whatever his problems with Abel were, it can truly be said that Cain had no love for Torah. In fact, Adam, Adam had already given Cain and Abel possession of the land by the time of their sacrifice. Jasher 1.14 says as much. They were given separate acreage and different occupations because Cain could not get along with his brother. Why not just offer sacrifices on their own turf then? Because sacrifices were to be given at the altar. That's why. Another account of the same event includes the said altar. And reads, this again comes from Legends of the Jews. The slaying of Abel by Cain did not come as a wholly unexpected event to his parents. In a dream, Eve had seen the blood of Abel flow into the mouth of Cain, who drank it with avidity, though his brother entreated him not to take all. When she told her dream to Adam, he said, lamenting, Oh, that this may not portend the death of Abel at the hand of Cain. He separated the two lads, assigning to each an abode of his own, and to each he taught a different occupation. Cain became a tiller of the ground and Abel a keeper of the sheep. It was all in vain. In spite of these precautions, Cain slew his brother. His hostility towards Abel had more than one reason. It began when Elohim had respect unto the offering of Abel and accepted it by sending heavenly fire down to consume it, while the offering of Cain was rejected. I'm going to pause there really quickly and just make a little side note that I actually want to do a whole thing on on something that, again, if you blink, you miss it in Scripture. And it took me forever. I guess I'm just slow to pick up on this, that it, it to have a sacrifice uh, accepted with grace before Yahuwah, he had to send the fire, right? You, you wouldn't want to offer strange fire. That didn't end so well for Aaron's sons. Continuing, they brought their sacrifices on the 14th day of Nisan, there it is again, at the instance of their father, who had spoken thus to his sons, this is the day on which, in times to come, Israel will offer sacrifices. Therefore, do ye too bring sacrifices to your creator on this day, that he may take pleasure in you. The place of offering which they chose was the spot whereon the altar of the temple at Yerushalayim stood later. What its location once again tells us is that the altar whereupon Yahuwah accepted Havel's offering and rejected Cain's is the same which their parents had built some years earlier after being cast out of the garden. The adventure continues, but we've only just scratched the surface.
Now, I have already established the fact that Adam lived upon the mountain just below paradise until his dying day. But now we see the same of Seth and the Sethites after him. They all lived on, on the mountain below the garden, every last one of them, so long as there remained a Sethite, that is. So follow along. This comes from 2 Adam and Eve, chapter 11, 10 through 12. Seth and his children dwelt on the mountain below the garden. They sowed not, neither did they reap. They wrought no food for the body, not even wheat, but only offerings. They ate of the fruit of the trees, well-flavored, that grew on the mountain where they dwelt. Then Seth often fasted every 40 days. That's kind of an interesting number there. Uh, he's fasting for 40 days. Who else did that? As did also his eldest children. For the family of Seth smelled the smell of the trees in the garden when the, blue, when the wind blew that way. Sounds amazing. They were happy, innocent, without sudden fear. There was no jealousy, no evil action, no hatred among them. There was no animal passion. From no mouth among them went forth either foul words or curse, neither evil counsel nor fraud. For the men of that time never swore, but under hard circumstances when men must swear, they swore by the blood of Abel the just. Of course, by the time of the flood, nearly everyone had traded in their mountain abode for life among the Canaanites, all but a few. Only Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah remained on the mountain of worship, or Zion. So this is according to Second Adam and Eve, chapter 22, verse 8 through 10. When Enoch had ended his commandments to them, Elohim transported him from the mountain to the land of life, to the mansions of the righteous and of the chosen, the abode of paradise of joy, in life that reaches up, excuse me, in light that reaches up to heaven, light that is outside the light of this world, for it is the light of Elohim that fills the whole world, but which no place can contain. Thus, because Enoch was in the light of Elohim, he found himself out of the reach of death until Elohim would have him die. Altogether, not one of our fathers or other children remained on that holy mountain, except those three, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. For all the rest went down from the mountain and fell into sin with the children of Cain. Therefore were they forbidden that mountain, and, and none remained on it but those three men. I don't want to assume too much, but I think it's safe to deduce that the Sethites continued sacrificing at the altar which Adam built until the surge of floodwaters. For most, however, the assumption would end there. The flood arrived and destroyed everything, did it not? Thus ends the life of Yahuwah's altar. Bummer. But not really. You wouldn't suspect an altar of unhewn stone would amount to much, particularly where the cruelty of the flood is concerned. Wouldn't you know it, though? The altar survived. This is in Genesis 8, verse, verse 20 of the Targum. And Noah built the altar before Yahuwah, the altar which Adam had built, in the time when he was cast forth from the Garden of Eden and had offered an oblation upon it. And upon it had Cain and Abel offered their oblations, so that answers our question. But when the waters of the deluge descended, it was destroyed, and Noah rebuilt it. And he took of all clean cattle and of all clean fowl and sacrificed four upon the altar, and Yahuwah accepted his oblation with favor. What I should have said is the altar was reconstructed. 
It survived only so much that Noah was perfectly capable of collecting the unhewn stones scattered about the mountainside. It may have uh, kinked the old man's back, but being 600 years old, you'd think he'd have an idea as to what the altar looked like, even when turned into a jigsaw puzzle. Also, if there was any doubt, it affirms that Cain and Abel did indeed offer their oblations upon it. And anyways, this simultaneously tells us that Noah made haste back to the only home he'd ever known, bringing the clean animals with him soon as the floodwaters had resided. It only makes sense that he would. I mean, after all, the mountain of worship is Zion. Best to go to the one known place where heaven and earth meet. Once more, uh, or excuse me, one more source before pushing for further comment. Or pausing for further comment kind of beating a dead horse by now, but it deserves being repeated. So once again, this comes from Legends of the Yahudim. The sacrifices consisted of an ox, a sheep, a goat, two turtle doves, and two young pigeons. Noah had chosen these kinds because he supposed they were appointed for sacrifices, seeing that Elohim had commanded him to take seven pairs of them into the ark with him. The altar was erected in the same place on which Adam and Cain and Abel had brought their sacrifices, and on which later the altar was to be in the sanctuary at Yerushalayim. Some of the worst crimes in recorded biblical history happened in the whereabouts of Mount Zion. Satan's transgression with Hava and then Cain's murder of Havel are continually mentioned, but there are just two of them. Consider that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness there as well. The story doesn't need repeat. But you might recall, uncovering his father's nakedness entailed having sex with his mother, who in turn conceived and bore Canaan. Noah became the father of his own grandchild. In every case, the context is war between Satan and the Most High. Ham was excommunicated, just as Cain was. And we can easily imagine it happened on the whereabouts of Mount Moriah. The proximity of the mountaintop to paradise gives Cain's complaint to Yahuwah more context. So this comes from uh, Genesis chapter 4, just straight from the Sefer. And Cain said to El Yahuwah, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from your face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every, everyone that finds me shall slay me. For completely opposite reasons, David was driven out from the land of Israel as well. Like Cain, he became a fugitive and a vagabond, and many attempted to slay him. The defining difference is that David not only did no wrong, he was also Yahuwah's anointed. Well, this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 26. Now, therefore, I pray you, let my Adonai, and by the way, this is David talking. Let me start again. Now, therefore, I pray you, let my Adonai, the king, hear the words of his servant. If Yahuwah have stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before Yahuwah. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of Yahuwah, saying, go serve other Elohim. Good speech. I should have probably given some context, though. David has just proven that he could have taken King Shaul's life had he wanted to. He didn't, though. He knew that Yahuwah would follow through with his promises and bring an end to Shaul's life in order that he might be made king over Yasharel. He has now woken him and his men up from their sleep to give them the news. His complaint to King Shaul bears a 
familiar theme. To be driven from the epicenter of heaven's connection with earth was to be hidden from the face of Elohim. Indeed, Yashrael is the land of Eden, and Zion is the mountaintop. You shall see even more conclusively as we continue the life of Yahuwah's altar in part two. So jumping to part two, it's ca I call it the school of Shem. No reason to beat around the bush, or I mean stack of sticks. Our next encounter with Yahuwah's altar arrives with another infamous name. Two of them, actually. Abraham and Yitchak, or Isaac. We read, uh, this comes from the legends of the Yahudim, the circumcision was performed on the tenth day of Tishri, the Day of Atonement. And upon the spot on which the altar was later to be erected in the temple, for the act of Abraham remained a never-ceasing atonement for Israel. I know what you're probably thinking. No names were mentioned, and technically, uh, Yitchak wouldn't be born for another year. It was um, uh, Yishmael who was circumcised with Abraham, along with Eliezer and his entire household. So according to this, an important event did happen to Yishmael on Mount Zion. Let's just not confuse Moriah with the Roman fort, which people call the Temple Mount, which Islam claims is their own. If they have a hankering for Roman architecture, then it, it's all theirs. They can have it. Or rather, let the Zionists fight them for it. Also, the altar was nowhere to be found in the circumcision story. Only to the untrained eye, though. As we shall soon see, it was still there. What we ultimately learned, however, is that the altar for the temple would later be erected. So, different altar then? Not necessarily. You'll just have to keep reading to find out. Now, when it came time for the sacrifice, Abraham had already been raised in the school of Shem, and therefore knew all about it. The history of the mountain had undoubtedly been related to him by Noah, but even Shem had lived there as a child. Every single illustration that I can find of the event shows Yitchak as a beardless child, but it simply isn't true at all. The child was nearing 40. 37, actually. The, the legends of the Yahudim once again claim, And Abraham took the word, wood and arranged it upon the altar, and he bound Yitchak to place him upon the wood which was upon the altar to slay him for a burnt offering before Yahuwah. Yitchak spoke hereupon, Father, make haste, bear thine arm, and bind my hands and feet securely, for I am a young man, but thirty-seven years of age, and thou art an old man. His age is just a side note. Not really. It is important to figuring out the overarching narrative. You shall see why in a moment. At present, though, it is the altar of Yahuwah which makes another appearance. The altar which Noah rebuilt and which Yitchak was nearly sacrificed upon are the same. Genesis 22.9 in the Targum even says as much. And they came to the place of which Yahuwah had told him, and Abraham built there the altar which Adam had built which had been destroyed by the waters of the deluge, which Noah had again built, and which had been destroyed in the age of divisions. And he set the wood in order upon it, and bound Yitchak, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Rather difficult to argue now that Mount Mor Moriah in the land of Yasharel is anything other than the mountain of worship in the land of Eden. Somebody out there will most certainly try, though. Come at me, bro. If you're paying attention, we learn two things. One, that Abraham did indeed offer Yitchak upon the very altar which Adam had built. And then secondly, that the altar had been destroyed in the age of divisions. That's all we're told about its destruction, though. 
There is no other account that I have found which mentions who destroyed it and why. The Age of Divisions may very well be a reference to the Tower of Babel. Unlikely, though. Or the days of Peleg. Lots of dividing there. Perhaps even the war between Nimrod and the kings of Canaan. Then again, all three events are likely related. The snowball that formed into an avalanche. Seeing as how Shem was the Meshelzedek of Salem, you'd think he would maintain the altar from time to time. It would only make sense then, given what we know, that circumstances beyond his control, like the post-Babel land grab that led to the war, would bring about its demise. At any rate, Legends of the Yahudim gives us a similar account, but once again manages to add titillating details. The place on which Abraham had erected the altar was the same whereon Adam had brought the first sacrifice, and Cain and Abel had offered their gifts to Elohim. The same whereon Noah raised an altar to Elohim after he left the ark, and Abraham, who knew that it was the place appointed for the temple, called it Yura, for it would be the abiding place of the fear and the service of Elohim. But Hashem had given it the name Shalem place of Shalom, and Elohim would not give offense to either Abraham or Shem, he united the two names and called the city by the name Yerushalayim. Pause. Shem named it Shalom, Abraham named it Yura. Why not combine the two names into one? That's an origin story right there, just not the, the titillating part. Continuing. After the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Abraham returned to Beersheba, the scene of so many of his joys. Yitzhak was carried to paradise by angels, and there he sojourned for three years. Thus, Abraham returned home alone, and when Sarah beheld him, she exclaimed, Satan spoke truth when he said that Yitzhak was sacrificed, and so grieved was her soul that it fled from her body. Legends of the Ahudim. Sarah died. That's the part I wanted you to read. Yitzhak was carried to paradise by angels, which is the same as saying he was carried to the Garden of Eden. The two locations are synonymous. He then sojourned there for three years. Before you protest, because there's always one, I will remind you that the writer is in the very least being consistent. Mount Zion is where heaven meets earth. Therefore, if the angels were to nab someone, you figure the location of the temple is as good as a spot as any, if not better. That still begs the question, what was Yitzhak doing in paradise for the length of three years? I'm glad you asked. I really am. This is the stuff that wakes me up in the morning. The Aramaic Targum answers any aching inquiries, but then altogether riddles us with another perplexing question. Follow along. Genesis 22, verse 19. And the angels on high took Yitchak and brought him into the school of Shem the Great, and he was there three years. What the, huh? My thoughts exactly. Paradise or Shem school, which is it? Well, both. Figuring out this mystery will undoubtedly take further digging. Don't be surprised if, if even more complications arrive. Here's one. When Satan lied to Sarah and told her that Abraham had sacrificed Yitzhak, Sarah frantically went about combing the land. She had the bright idea to knock on the door of Shem. Uh, from this we come to learn. This is in the book of Jasher. Verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 85. And she, Sarah, came with her maidservants and menservants to uh, Kirat Arba, which is Chevron. And she asked concerning her son, and she remained there while she sent some of her servants to seek where Abraham had gone with Yitzhak. 
They went to seek him in the house of Shem and Eber, and they could not find him. And they sought throughout the land, and he was not there. Hmm. He wasn't there. So he ascended to paradise then? Technically, no. Yitchak was still with Abraham by this point. While Sarah sought out Yitchak, Abraham and Yitchak sought her out. She died before they could reach her. We then read in Jasher 23:90, And Abraham and Yitchak wept greatly, and all their servants wept with them on account of Sarah, and they mourned over her a great and heavy mourning. From this point in Yasher's narrative, Yitchak disappears. When he again enters the stage, Lot is dead. Abraham has sent Eliezer on an errand to retrieve for his son a bride. A bride. And then we read, this comes from Jasher again. And Eliezer did as Abraham ordered him, and Eliezer swore unto Abraham his Adonai upon this matter. And Eliezer rose up and took ten camels of the camels of his Adonai, and ten men from his Adonai's servants with them, and they rose up and went to Haran, the city of Abraham and Nacor, in order to fetch a woman for Yitchak, the son of Abraham. And while they were gone, Abraham sent to the house of Shem and Eber, and they brought from thence his son, Yitchak. I guess that means Abraham wasn't lying to Sarah. We read in Jasher 23, 4-5, And Abraham came into the tent, and he sat before Sarah his woman, and he spoke these words to her, My, my son Yitchak is grown up, and he has not for some time studied the service of his Elohim. I should probably stress that this is before they leave on their journey. Now tomorrow I will go and bring him to Shem and Eber his son. And there he will learn the ways of Yahuwah, for they will teach him to know Yahuwah, as well as to know that, that when he prays continually before Yahuwah, he will answer him. Therefore, there, he will know the way of serving Yahuwah Elohayu. So he was in the house of Shem, but for how long? Well, Jasher says, and Yitshak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, or Rebecca, the daughter of his uncle, Bethiel for a woman. The math adds up. If Yitchak was nearly sacrificed at 37 years of age, and he spent three years either in paradise or the school of Shem, then he would be 40 upon the day when Rivka arrived on the hump of a camel. That still begs the question, how could Yitchak reside in two locations, the house of Shem and the garden? Well, the city of Shalom was upon the mountain of worship. In the very least, we have already seen how heaven and earth were accessed there. I believe the following passage gives us the answer we're seeking. This comes from the writings of Abraham. Wherefore, I will send Noah unto thee in the tabernacle, and he will bestow upon thee the keys of this priesthood. For the city of Meshelzedek will I take up from off the earth, and there will be a new beginning in thee. For I will greatly multiply thy seed, and I will make them my ministers, that through thy priesthood all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. I just love it when scripture fits like a glove. When Abraham was told by Yahuwah that the city of Meshelzedek would ascend to heaven, he hadn't taken Yitchak to Mount Moriah yet. It happens later chronologically. We can easily deduce that the keys of the priesthood were transferred from Noah to Shem to Abraham at the time of his trial, and that the city of Shalom was removed, or the city of Meshelzedek, same thing, was removed from the earth shortly afterwards. 
Therefore, it is quite possible that Yitchak was schooled by Shem in paradise. During the same event, the uh, anal analogous relationship between Mount Moriah and the mountain of worship, as well as paradise, is established in another spectacular war. The ram, which that probably should have said spectacular way. The ram which Abraham offered in the place of his son was no ordinary creature. In Genesis 22.13 Targum, we read, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, a certain ram which had been created between the evenings of the foundation of the world was held in the entanglement of a tree by his horns. And Abraham went and took him and offered him an offering instead of his son. Genesis 22.13, Targum. So, the ram was old then. Very old. It shouldn't be a leap of logic to conclude that it came from paradise. That much is inferred. But if you notice, I took the red ink out on two separate and important need-to-know facts. The first is when the ram was created. The second is where. At the foundation of the world. What is Zion again? but the earth's cornerstone. Again, we read from Legends of the Yahudim, the construction of the earth was begun at the center with the foundation stone of the temple. For the Holy Land is at the central point of the surface of the earth. Yerushalayim is at the central point of Palestine. And the temple is situated at the center of the holy city. The mere fact that Mount Zion is the center of the earth is a definite clue as to the true location of Yasharel, not the sliver of land the Zionist tells us is the Holy Land. Probably didn't think I was going there. I just did. But that's another trail of breadcrumbs in and of itself, one which I hope to devote an entire paper to at another time, as the intents of this exercise is a biography of unhewn stone. It is the unhewn stone which connects the dots and forms the picture, which very few seem willing to acknowledge that the land of Eden and Yasharel are the same. And now for part three. Even the rocks cry out. Whether or not you want to believe that Yasharel and Eden are the same locale, I have already verifiably demonstrated that the ancient writers believed they were. I did it very simply and in a manner which nobody else has thought to connect. The altar. Not that I can blame anyone for overlooking the obvious, as even the ancients were subtle about Eden's whereabouts. While it is true that I have quoted heavily from Legends of the Yahudim, and yes, even I read that text with suspicion, the core of the argument revolves around what the Aramaic Targum has to say on the matter. Any other quoted source, usually involving the genre of Edemic literature, simply complements the Genesis Targum. When we last left off, Abraham was spared of sacrificing Yitzhak on the altar of Yahuwah, thanks in part to the intercession of a ram. Despite having the Targum tell us that the sacrifice animal had been created between the evenings at the foundation of the world, I made the decision to leave out any further description of that ram. Well, that verdict is about to be overturned. This is technically a biography about the altar. But why not parallel that ram's life story as well? As it turns out, the ram was put to good use beyond his moment of salvation on the altar. 
As the creation of this ram had been extraordinary, so also was the use to which all parts of his carcass were put. Not one thing went to waste. The ashes of the parts burnt upon the altar formed the foundation of the inner altar, whereon the expiatory sacrifices was brought once a year on the Day of Atonement, the day on which the offering of Yitchak took place. Of the sinews of the ram, David made ten strings for his harp upon which he played. The skin served Elijah for his girdle, and of his two horns, the one was blown at the end of the revelation on Mount Sinai, and the other will be used to proclaim the end of the exile, when the great horn shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria. And they that were outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship Yahuwah in the holy mountain at Yerushalayim, legends of the Yahudim. Learning exactly what it means in regards to the ram, that not one thing went to waste, will likely induce an eye roll or become a jarring glare to most. But that is only because the location of paradise has been purposely hidden from us. Why? Perhaps because the Zionists needed their little Israel deception to work. Where is the presence of Yahuwah, though? The Targum documents all sorts of materials which the Sethites and Meshelzedeks pulled from paradise for their own use, one of which was the very grapes which Noah planted his vineyard with. It all speaks to the attainable proximity of paradise with Mount Zion, and our slave masters can't have that. Abraham's last adventure on Zion, from what I can find, happens to be the sacrificial episode. Quick recap. Yitchak then spent three years learning about Yahuwah in Shem school, which just so happened to be in paradise. As Abraham leaves the mountain behind him, we are told one more time of its historical importance. And the days of the life of Sarah were a hundred and twenty and seven years, the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirath Arba, which is Hebron. And Abraham came from the mountain of worship and found that she was dead. And he sat to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Genesis 23, 1-2 Subtle, isn't it? Most would read right over its unofficial name. I know I did on the first go-round. And yet, the Aramaic Targum is once again lining up the breadcrumbs for us in identifying Mount Moriah with the very mountain which Adam and Hava and later the Sethites inhabited. Yitchak, of course, continued being intimate with the mountain, seeing as how he, he enrolled in Shem school at the age of 37 and remained there for three years. Marrying Rivka at the age of 40 meant he was a recent graduate. We've already gone over that part. Here's what I didn't tell you, though. Rivka fled from her pagan upbringing in Babylon in order that she might worship Yahuwah through her marriage to Yitchak, and yet was incapable of having children. Genesis records the fact that she was barren while leaving out some important details. This comes from Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 through 23. And Yitchak entreated Yahuwah for his woman, because she was barren. And Yahuwah was entreated of him, and Rivka, his woman, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of Yahuwah. And Yahuwah said unto her, Two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from your generation. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. It says she went to inquire of Yahuwah without filling in those coordinates. Wouldn't you like to know them? I would. Her journey comes only after Yitchak entreated of Yahuwah. 
Why would Rivka need to go anywhere if all Yitchak needed to do was stay put? In Rivka's defense, if you're going to seek out Yahuwah's presence on Earth, what better place than the mountaintop where Earth and Paradise meet? That's my guess. We'll see if it's a correct one. Meanwhile, her inquiry was a success, wherever she landed, because the word of Yahuwah met her in some capacity and relayed a message. Here's what the Aramaic Targum says, same passage. And Yitchak went to the mountain of worship, the place where his father had bound him. And Yitchak, in his prayer, turned the attention of the Holy One, blessed be he, from that which he had decreed concerning him who had been childless, and he was enlarged, and Rivka, his wife, was with child. Pause. Ah, that answers my first question. He did go somewhere after all, and it was to familiar territory. Yitchak went to the only location which he could think of that might help, and that is the mountain of worship. Continuing. And the children pressed in her womb as men doing battle, and she said, If this is the anguish of a mother, what then are children to me? And she went into the school of Shem Rabbah to supplicate mercy before Yahuwah. And Yahuwah said to her, Two people are in thy womb, and two kingdoms from thy womb shall be separated, and one kingdom shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger, if the children of the younger will keep the commandments of the law. Genesis 25, 20-22, Targum. Rivka took her inquiry one step further than her husband because, whereas Yitchak is only said to have prayed on the mountaintop, Rivka entered her husband's old hangout, Shem School. And you know what that means, don't you? It is very possible that she was granted temporary access into paradise. I'm not saying she was, but it does seem likely that the city of Shalom has ascended by this point in history. Difficult to say with certainty, though. Notice how it specifies that Rivka went into the school of Shem to supplicate mercy before Yahuwah, and that it was Yahuwah who spoke with her. I can't help but suspect that Yahuwah was speaking through Shem, the high priest of the Meshelzadek priesthood. No, I can't prove that to be true. It's based upon other scripture that we've read and simply a hunch, but also the following passage. So this comes from... I'm not sure where this comes from. <laughs> I'll read it anyways. Probably Legends of the Yahudim. Ribfika asked other women whether they too had suffered such pain during their pregnancy, and when they told her they had not heard of a case like hers, except the pregnancy of Nimrod's mother, that's interesting, she betook herself to Mount Moriah, whereon Shem and Eber had their Bet Ha Midrash. She requested them, as well as Abraham, to inquire of Elohim what the cause of her dire suffering was. And Shem replied, My daughter, I confide a secret to thee. See to it that none finds out. Two nations are in thy womb, and how should the body contain them, seeing that the whole world will not be large enough for them to exist in it together peaceably? Two nations they are, each owning a world of its own, the one the Torah, the other sin. From the one will spring Solomon, the builder of the temple. From the other, Vespian the destroyer thereof. These two are what are needed to raise the number of nations to seventy. They will never be in the same estate. Esau will vaunt lords, while Yaakov will bring forth prophets. And if Esau has princes, Yaakov will have kings. They, Israel and Rome, are the two nations destined to be hated by all the world. One will exceed the other in strength. First, Esau will subjugate the whole world, 
But in the end, Yaakov will rule over all. At this point, it's starting to come around full circle. The reason why the true land of Yashorel, a.k.a. the land of Eden, is being hidden from us. As we have seen time and time again, the presence of Yahuwah the Most High makes himself known there. But also, the Romans are Edomites. How ironic that this revelation came to be on Mount Moriah. Rivka is told in broad black and white terms that one son within her would build the temple upon the very ground she stood too, whereas the other would destroy it. There's another dirty little secret, however, and it is this. The Romans are Edomites. But then again, so are the Jews. No, not the Yahudim that we read about in scripture. The Yahudim are one tribe among twelve. I'm talking about the Ashkenazi Jews, the people inhabiting the fake land of Israel today. They're Edomites. You can read all about that in my paper, 1948, the year Edom conquered Israel. And who runs Zionism again? You would be correct if you guessed Rome. Moving on. You may have observed, and even remarked privately, how the altar was never directly specified with Yitzhak and Rivka. It was still there, though. We know that to be true because it makes one final appearance with her son, Yaakov. Five miracles were wrought for our father Yaakov at the time that he went forth from Beersheba. The first sign, the hours of the day were shortened, and the sun went down before his time, for as much as the word had desired to speak with him. The second sign, the four stones which Yaakov had set for his pillow, he found in the morning, had become one stone. Sign the third, the stone which, when all the flocks were assembled, they rolled from the mouth of the will, he rolled away with one of his arms. The fourth sign, the well overflowed and the water rose to the edge of it, and continued to overflow all the days that he was in Haran. The fifth sign, the country was shortened before him, so that in one day he went forth and came to Haran. Genesis 28.10, Targum. The context of this scene is Yaakov's ladder. He's on his way to be enslaved for the matter of twenty years under Laban, his mother's brother. And no, it doesn't outright say the four stones were removed from Adam's altar, but that is what ultimately happened. And besides, seeing as how the stone of scone is reported to be Yaakov's pillow, you can now see why the Scottish foot massager, or is it Winchester butt cushion, managed to be 22 and 16.7 inches in length and with weighing in at approximately 335 pounds. Four separate stones became one. I suppose the first thing I ought to do, if I were to make the case that the Stone of Scone is indeed a relic from Adam's altar, is to pinpoint Yaakov's exact location with a certain level of assurance. The Rashi Chumash gives us the following nugget of information. And he came to the place, Mount Moriah, and he spent the night there. Still not reading anything about Adam's altar, though. Perhaps legends of the Yahudim can once again be of assistance. Yaakov took twelve stones from the altar on which his father Yitzhak had lain bound as a sacrifice. And he said, It was the purpose of Elohim to let twelve tribes arise, but they have not been begotten by Abraham or Yitzhak. If now these twelve stones will unite into a single one, then shall I know for a certainty that I am destined to become the father of the twelve tribes. At this time, the second miracle came to pass. The twelve stones joined themselves together and made one which he put under his head, and at once it became soft and downy like a pillow. Legends of the Yahudim. There you have it, sort of. Legends of the Yahudim ties Yaakov's stones to Adam's altar, but then once again veers off into uncharted territory. The later text claims Yaakov oversaw twelve stones, blending into one. 
whereas the Genesis Targa manages only four. At the end of the day, I will take the Targum as a historical authority before signing off to a later Midrash. However, I must say, the explanation given by legends, that there were twelve of them in all, makes far more sense than four, particularly knowing what we do of this scone stone. Oh well, can't win them all. Really, the location of Yaakov's ladder makes far more sense on Mount Zion than anywhere else. I shouldn't even have to explain that by now. But let's read a line from a f- the familiar passage anyways. So you can see lined up side by side, Genesis 28.12, and then 28.12 Targum. From the Hebrew Masoretic, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Then from the Targum, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was fixed in the ground, and the top of it reached to the height of heaven. The Aramaic Targum claims the ladder was fixed in the ground, whereas the Hebrew Masoretic informs us that it was set up on the earth. Same difference, though. Do tell me you set up a ladder to climb onto the roof without managing to fix it into the ground first. An unsteady ladder doesn't sound pleasant, even for divine beings. Point being, if angels were expected to descend to the earth and then back to heaven again, then where else would you expect something like that but the mountain of worship? From this mile marker in history, pinpointing the fate of the altar becomes somewhat uncertain. Centuries later, we know that David purchased the land for Solomon's temple on Aravna's threshing floor. The account in brief goes as follows. And Aravna said, Wherefore is my Adonai the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of you, to build an altar unto Yahuwah, that the plague may be stayed from the people. 2 Samuel 24.21 What this tells us is that the altar has been cleared. Or else how could there be a threshing floor? Again, not surprising. For centuries, the altar was tended to by the Sethites. The Canaanites were not allowed on the mountain to destroy it. But how often did it need repair during Shem's lifetime? Frequently. After Shem's parting, I could only imagine the altar fell into total disrespair. The patriarchs ended up in Egypt and the Canaanites weren't exactly lovers of Yahuwah. Then again, we have the stone of scone to chase after. Not to be confused with that snooty sort of fellow who will proudly acknowledge he's bent over to kiss the Blarney Stone. What afterwards remained of Adam's altar may have rendered it useless. And so, I suppose, if I were to write a part four, I would attempt to trace the history of Adam's altar to Scotland and finally to Winchester, unless it's true that monks were successful in dumping the scone stone into the River Tay. But what would be the point of such a writing exercise? I wanted to show you that the mountain of worship is indeed the same as Mount Zion, and that even the ancients knew that. Mission accomplished. Did you see what I saw in the above passage, though? David's first act after purchasing the threshing floor was to erect an altar unto Yahuwah upon it. Hmm, makes you wonder. He would have gathered the unhewn stone which had been chucked aside to pave the ground ultimately for Solomon's temple. Perhaps some of the original altar remained, after all. With that knowledge, we will close shop. I have hawk-eyed a single nest of unhewn stone as far as I feel comfortable, but still have so many questions. Like, what about the altar that Antiochus IV built and roasted a pig upon? After the Yahudim broke that altar down, they would have cast those stones aside, not knowing what to do with them. Are those the very stones which prompted Yahusha, upon entering the temple, to later claim, I tell you that, if these should hold their shalom, the stones would immediately cry out. Luke 1940
impossible at present to tell. I checked. The second Samuel Targum says David built an altar on the threshing floor without making any mention of the stones which Noah had regathered. The closest connection that I can find once again comes from Legends of the Yahudim in which we read, David's first thought after ascending the throne was to rest Yerushalayim, sacred since the days of Adam, Noah, and Abraham, from the grasp of the heathen. Now you know, and I know, why Yerushalayim would be sacred to Adam and Noah. We shall have to be content letting everyone else be confused on the matter. All right, I made it through that. I apologize for my connection issues. Um, obviously, there was not much I could do about that. Uh, thank you, everyone who did hang in there with me tonight. Awesome. I uh, enjoyed it. I see uh, Rebecca's comments there. Uh, very interesting how you pulled all of the all of these the Targum references. Uh, I know you went into the Legends of the Jews to grab some of that uh, to give some more uh, uh, at least another lens to look at. And what I find interesting, and I want to ask, is the okay. So the mounting of worship is in the land of Eden, which you also mentioned is in the land of Yasharel. You 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 referenced it being below the garden. It's also called Mount Moriah and Mount Zion. So what's your opinion or thought that the mountain of worship or Mount Zion or Moriah the location? Uh, where do you feel it may be? And I, I, I know where I know where you're going, but uh, where do you feel it may be? And, and what does it mean below the garden? Can you explain that? Um, so obviously paradise was taken up at some point. I can't, I, I can't, I would like to look into when it was taken up, but apparently by the time, the days of Seth, the Sethites, it was still, you know, viewable, right? We never see any time after the flood when Noah goes back that he ever was able to see paradise. Um, so to answer that, first off, um, you know, I, again, it's, it, it seems to be, you know, when you understand, and Michael Heiser talks about this, that, you know, like, the, he talks about the pyramids seem to be mimicking mountains, right? And when you look in the ancient world, it was, always, and the Zuckernauts are the same way. They mimic mountains because they understood that mountains um, is where you would meet Elohim. And I believe that all these zuggernauts, pyramids, everything, they're actually mimicking the mountain of worship, where mankind first came from, right? The land of Eden. So now where where that is, I can't rightly say. Um, here's I, I see two things. One is that when I'm reading from all this, uh, so much of this literature, like Edemic literature and others, and they, they talk about, I mean, I had so many notes that I, you know, for the link, uh, sake of length, I threw out. But I'm, I'm reading, the way I read about these mountains, and then I look at modern Jerusalem, it, it doesn't look like mountains to me. They look like hills, like sloping hills. And we read about, uh, it just it, it's, feels very different. Now, because maybe it's because I'm so uh, just, you know, conditioned uh, 
But when I read the New Testament, I read about Yahusha and so on and so forth, I can envision modern Jerusalem and I can envision, you know, the, the, the Mount of Olives and I, you know, I can see all that. I've been there myself. I've seen it. But it doesn't really match up with how I picture it, you know, in olden days. So I, 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 think, it's, I think it's elsewhere. And I, I've pointed this out in our mud flood research that if, um, if modern Israel is the land of Israel, then I'm highly suspicious that the, the Millennial Kingdom has not happened yet. Because if, if the Millennial Kingdom did happen, then, um, then Yahushua set up a kingdom that is forever. He set up a house that is forever, a temple that, you know, it will, it will not go away unless if, you know, New Jerusalem comes down on top of it. Um, and so it has to still be there. The camp of Yah has to still exist. And I believe the camp of Yah is Jerusalem on Mount Zion in the mountain of worship. Um, so I don't know where that is. Um, it, it would be oh, a thought. I just had a thought while you're saying that, that if, if we read that the city of Enoch, the, you know, all, you know, the different references to that city, um, coming up before the flood, you know, that mountain coming up to being spared and, and so forth, that could the kingdom that came to the beginning of the millennial, could that be a floating city, a floating mountain, uh, possibly, or was it to settled and, you know, on a piece of land? Just a thought. That's, um, that's, that's certainly interesting. Okay, so that okay, so when we're looking at this timeline, we're we're looking at appears like a couple resurrections happening. We we read through the Gospel of Nicodemus as a group. You guys saw uh, a lot of you guys were here for the the episode I did on showing how uh, Yahusha went into Sheol at his crucifixion, and he uh, the language that is used there is that he. They were resurrected. There were two resurrections happening. We saw people physically resurrecting and coming out of their tombs. And many of the others, Adam, Seth, onwards, they were taken to paradise. All right. So according to that, that was a transitional period. Um, and I, I explained to you guys, a lot of my theology has changed reading this stuff. And it, even Second Ezra says that, that Sheol would be emptied out. And um, and so when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, Sheol is really emptied out, right? So all these people went to paradise. They're there in paradise. And, but then there's the, um, the what we call the resurrection, uh, the, the millennial saints, okay? These are the ones that were resurrected to be priests in the millennial kingdom. They were um, the qualifications. Um, I, if you guys recall a few weeks ago, I went through them. Uh, it, the, being written in the book of life is not a qualification. Uh, being a, a qualification is those who were martyred. Um, you know, they had their heads chopped off, um, or they, um, or the, you know, they, they basically lived and went into it. Right? They were gathered there at the end. So I'm getting to a point here. So, and I'm just thinking out loud. This is my thinking out loud process. If if this mountain uh, of Eden descended to the earth at this point you you have that would mean you would have all the rest of the resurrection saints on it like adam onwards and i'm not sure they were on the earth does that make sense so i could be wrong i don't know but that's worth looking into i'm just thinking out loud at this point 
And I, I, know, I know that this is where a lot of people are going to jump off, you know, because they're like, the train be like, okay, Noel, you're saying that's not the Holy Land out there. The, yeah, that proves you wrong. Your argument's, you know, uh, done at this time. I, it, it's hard. I don't know. Because I could see it both ways, and I, you know, as I've pointed out here, I've um, I've taken the the poll here amongst this own group, and it seems like a lot of the people here are kind of in agreement with me that um, it's it's a hoax. So it only makes sense. It only makes sense that Satan would that he would lie about about our you know inheritance as well. So well, yeah, a couple running theories that you could you could uh, consider is it being places where we can't see or go whether it's the north pole or whether it's further beyond you know outside of our realm so to speak or it's a uh, a floating city or floating mountain or something to that effect is another possibility and i dropped in the chat there you know there the movie the movies the hollywood also you know throws all kinds of hints out there with these whether it's these floating uh, pyramid cities, uh, satellite stations like that. I mean, I, re I recall another, well, I forgot that Egyptian movie where they worshipped a god and then um, Stargate. I think it was Stargate. Uh, and then they find out that it's it's like this pyramid that goes around from wor different worlds and different dimensions. I mean, there's just, I don't know, I'm saying it, I, I could see that as a possibility or or mimicking the uh, city of Enoch, in that sense, uh, of of that. that. That's just some thoughts. So, let me see if I can pull up the uh, moon map here, because I wanted to talk about that real quick. This was oh, a great man. sharing, Noel. It makes so so much sense to me. I mean, like you connected the dots. There, there, there's no gap there. Like this was someplace else when Adam and Eve, you know, where they were created where they came down it wasn't all of a sudden they're in some other location it was all local yeah they the entire the entire bible except for when they're sent to egypt or babylon right except from their outcasts it all takes place in the land of eden the whole thing so i've heard some other creation stories um from people and what's interesting in them is even in that, the center shifted over the time since we're in now. Yes. And one of the is, is you have the Greeks is known as Hellas. And being <laughs> one end of the pole, so to say. And the other one was in, um, I want to say, modern day Finland up in Scandinavia. And I, I, I dropped the name in the um, chat. But even in that story, and I heard it right from the horse's mouth, actually, um, in India, that things have shifted since, let's just say, time began, since this story started. And so what we could be looking at, again, like you're bringing up the moon map, that the land, whether the waters receded or or not, but you can see um, things shifted. Um, not the center, not that, but outside of it, 
there has been movement there there has been changes uh, and which you know um which the moon map hints hints out at that we're we're shown what is what we consider the modern map of the world and even that some people are even questioning today because as we shared what we're mostly been shared since we've been here is you know from intel from into the internet it's always been part of the um the fictional narrative and so how much of that we can believe throws things into question again but what you laid out tonight that isn't in question that um eden the garden the connection to paradise the whole story is a central location and as we know that central location that we know of that we say is to the north in the center there uh makes so much sense that that is where jerusalem is the true jerusalem yeah and so one of the cases i want to make is okay like let me read to you guys here from a quick passage from this is the book of adam and adam is going to the i think is it the tigris he's going to the tigris river and he tells eve to do this he says rather be silent only do penitence in the water for 34 days with all your heart, and I will do the same in the Jordan River uh, until Elihim hearkens and gives us food. Okay, so I, I back that up. So Eve, it says Eve went off to the Tigris River, and she did as Adam had ordered her, but Adam, he remained in the Jordan River. Okay, so here we see in the book of Adam that the Tigris and the Jordan River are very close together. And... I find that I find that interesting because one of my so you know there's four rivers jetting off from the land of Eden, and it makes me wonder if one of the, the you know the names just changed, you know just like you know where they tell us the Tigris and the Euphrates River are today, they actually don't match up at all any description of how Moshe describes it. So sure, they copy the names; they could call it whatever they want, and sure they'd copy. Yeah, as you can see, to sow confusion. Yeah, so one of my theories is, and I want to look into this more, and it's a working theory, is that the, the Jordan River just was one of the four rivers that there was just renamed uh, within close proximity to Jerusalem. Um, I, anyways, I was trying to find the, the moon map. I couldn't find it. I was looking all over for it. The reason I wanted to look for it is because... If somebody could drop it in the chat, that would be really awesome, too. So I could actually look at this if they have it, because I, for the life of me, I can't find it. But so the, you know, the moon map does not work at all on a flat Earth map. I'm sorry, on a, on a globe map. I just screwed that up. It doesn't work on a globe map. Now, one thing that I remember with Rob Skiba was when he was going to debate Robert uh, Saginus, who is a, I have some respect for Robert Saginus in that he is a, a geocentrist. Yes, he believes in globe earth, but he is a geocentrist. He believes that NASA is lying about everything and that, you know, the earth does not spin, that it's fixed in place uh, and that the cosmos uh, spins around it. And one of the things he was, you know, uh, 
challenging. Oh, you know what? I backed that up. It was Kent Hoven. Kent Hoven when he was dogging on Rob Skiba, and and he was like, he's like, your map is so confusing, and blah blah blah, and they all have a debate with the map. And I remember Rob Skiba shot back, and he said, he's like, okay, fine. If you're gonna punch holes in uh, in our map. Uh, you pick one of your maps because the globe has like 30 different maps, right? Like there is no – people think they have consistent maps, but there is no consistent map with the globe Earth. Depending on what you want to show or prove, it changes. And you could just look. There's all these different maps. So we don't have a consistent map. But one of the things that's interesting about the, the moon map is that it does not work on, on a globe. There's no possible way because you go beyond the pole, as Admiral Byrd said, and there is all this land up there, right? That's what he talked about. All right. So one of the things that has my interest right now, I brought this up last Sabbath, but I'm going to mention again because it's worth mentioning, is, uh, um, you know, you, you, I think, Mike, you had mentioned how they throw things in our face all the time with Hollywood, is The Lord of the Rings. And I've been really captivated with J.R.R. Tolkien recently. I think the guy had to be, he and Lewis had to be uh, initiates. Uh, they, had, you know, they had to be in secret societies. The stuff that they were bringing out, the knowledge. Then again, you know, being raised in the library at Oxford, you have a lot of knowledge there at your disposal. But uh, in the, you know, the, what, what you don't get at the I almost fell out of my chair when I learned this, but apparently, according to the mythology of Middle-earth, I think it was in the Second Age, so Middle-earth starts out as a flat earth, all right, kind of like C.S. Lewis had Narnia be a flat earth as well, but it was in the Second Age that, for whatever reason, the earth went from flat to a globe, and that is how... Tolkien explained, if everyone remembers Aragorn, the guy who became king in Return of the King, sorry if I ruined the ending there for someone who hasn't seen it yet, but you know, he, his homeland was like this Atlantis continent that sunk into the ocean, and it happened when the Earth went from flat to a globe. Now, that's a ridiculous exoteric explanation. That is the stupidest explanation that the Earth would go from flat to a globe. But on an esoteric explanation, it makes a lot of sense. All right? So if you think esoterically, because... It is true that even our Earth went from flat to a globe, esoterically. Yes, it is still flat physically, but everybody thinks it's a globe, right? It went from flat to a globe. And at the ending of, of Return of the King, when Frodo and Bilbo and Gandalf and um, Elrond and the elves, they all get on these elvish ships. They're going, I think it's called the, the, the Straight Path, I think it's called. They're going to the lands in the West. Well, as I'm researching the lands in the West, according to Tolkien lore, and Josh, I guess you're the resident expert here. Tell me if I have all this wrong. It'll be pretty embarrassing if I get all this wrong. But um, apparently the land of the West cannot be accessed on a globe, that it, 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 it exists only on a flat Earth map. And it's these elvish ships that were able to go onto the flat Earth plane. So at the end of the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Frodo and Bilbo, they're on their way to the flat Earth. They're going to a continent which can only be reached on the flat Earth in that realm. All right, um, and I had to check a couple, few sources on this to make sure I was, I was interpreting this right. Uh, they don't tell you that in the movie, but that just leads back to this whole millennial kingdom debate. That what I'm saying is, is that the land of Israel did not go anywhere. It's still here on this earth, um, and but it's been hidden from us. Now that's going to sound like an oxymoron, like a like moronic talk to you know 
99% of the people out there, but I think some of you guys can follow me on this. It's been hidden from us, and you'll never find it on a globe. You got to look to the flat Earth map. You know, you got to you got to go. Um, I think t to us, it's actually due east. If you look at where we're at, and if we go due east, like we'll find it. And um, and we saw that like in Odes of Solomon and other texts where you know there you know Yahusha and the other people are like we're going to be hiding from people. We're hiding. Um, and, you know, we're going to darken their vision and so on and so forth. And they're going to be delusional. They're not going to know where we're at. So I think that I, my reading of scriptures and all that I've been looking at everything, that is my instinct. That is what happened. They're still on the earth. They didn't go anywhere. All right. So hopefully I didn't lose people there. No, yeah, that was, again, right in our faces. And it's a spiritual land. Yeah, so I didn't really talk about too much in this paper, but I wanted to kind of build up to it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I had, I had mentioned, like, in, when we've read other things, like um, in Second Ezra, there's this passage where Ezra is, Ezra says, he looks to Mount Zion, and he says, uh, it's that great passage where, um, all the resurrected saints are given palm branches and they're clothed in these white, uh, like, you know, robes, which is the Ruach HaKodesh. And it says that, you know, it, there's this very tall figure there with a crown that is actually crowning each person. And you find out that that's the Messiah, the, the son of Elohim, you know, Yahusha, which is a really cool picture. But Ezra, he says he looks on Mount Zion and he says it's a number beyond what is capable of being counted. If you go to Mount Zion in Israel, you know, it's a really small mountain. It's not, it's a, it's a hill. It's not a mountain. Uh, Mount Zion is described as a mountain and Mount Moriah and all stuff. And, you know, there was a journey up. It, it, it's not a journey to get up to the top of Mount Moriah. Um, you know, Mount Zion, whatever. It's, it's just a little, it's a hill. And if I could imagine that if you were to pack as many people as you could on Mount Zion, they could still be numbered. It's not, I mean, when Yahushua was, um, when he was, you know, spreading out the, the fish and the, the bread and, you know, uh, breaking them apart and, and, and multiplying them, they were still in those Gospels able to count how many men there were. They gave a rough estimate. And when, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they could still give an estimate of how many people they were. But he was not able to count them on Mount Zion. That tells me, I think it was a big mountain. It was really big. Remember when he was wandering in the desert? Have you ever seen the map of Moses wandering in a desert? It was almost like they were walking around in circles. Yeah, that that's yeah. It it does that doesn't um, th that's a lot of the questions I have. Things like that. Uh, you know, you can actually map out where David was running from uh, Shaul. And, you know, the whole army's after him, and it's like, really? He was, like, running in, like, a little triangle here through the woods through, like, five miles? Like, that doesn't make sense. Uh, and you get this picture, he's running great distances. And and I pointed out before that you've got 13 tribes officially, really 12 because the Levites have no land inheritance, but, um, you know, nine of the tribes are wedged between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. And then you got the three other tribes on the other side of the Jordan, and it goes 500 miles out to Babylon, like according to our map. It's like, how in the world did these three tribes get land going all the way to modern Iraq, to Iraq? And then the other 
nine tribes are wedged in this little land the size of like LA and Orange County. Um, and you know, there's just so many questions I have like that, that you really get the sense, like we, what we do is, is we we're trained when we read the Bible to think like a travel brochure and we're thinking, Oh, I want to go to this place and that place. and I want to see all this. And you try to envision what it looks like. But to me, I don't know. Some of the stuff, um, just it reads very different, much more bigger and spacious. And like I said, I could, you know, I could look at modern Jerusalem and I could imagine Yahusha there. I could see that. I could, you know, imagine him on Mount of Oz and stuff like that. But a lot of the other stuff doesn't. Um, it doesn't compute with me too much. Well, with what you shared tonight and about the um, the story, um, Adam and Eve's story, our story, is that the location doesn't make sense there. Right. If if and if the if the Sethites were living on the mountain of worship for. Um, 1,300 years according to the Masoretic, about 2,300 years according to the Septuagint. Um, I'm actually taking the Septuagint timeline. Um, it, it, like that's a, if you, again, if you go to Mount Zion today, it, it's hard for me to imagine that the, the Sethites, which were bigger in number until they dwindled down, could all live there on that mountain and eat from the fruit of the trees there. It needed to be a bigger mountain. That's what is being described in these texts. And it's just, it's, it's the thing is, is that, the people who are writing these texts, like, you would think that they would, I mean, they knew what they were doing. Like, you would think that they would try to match it up with, with uh, you know, the modernist state of Israel to some degree. But I just, I just don't think they were at all. I don't think they were. Yeah, what about the trees? All those fruit trees. I'm like, um, last time I checked. Most of what's growing there is today is from modern technology. It's pretty much a d desert. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Anybody else have any thoughts on anything? So, what I'm, uh, what I just finished today, and I'm going to be, uh, presenting it next week i'm really excited because i'm going to be talking about the seven thousand year timeline deception and trying to figure out where we're at in history now as you guys know i i believe we're at the final year of the final you know the the very end not the final year but the very end of the end of the end um but one of the things i found really is just to give you a preview of I, I, it was really stressful going through all of this. And just so you guys know, no dates match up in Scripture. If you take the Book of Jubilees, it doesn't match up with Genesis. If you take, um, you know, like uh, the, you know, the books of Adam and Eve or some of the others, like they, they, none of them match up. None of the dates. If you take the Book of Genesis and try to match it up to the ten-week prophetic calendar in Enoch, guess what? They don't match up. And none of the dates match up. And and I was also noticing two things, that there's a um, there's a bit of a paradox happening. You have two simultaneous storylines in Scripture. You have the uh, the Hebrew Masoretic, which is according to the official narrative, the youngest of our texts, which you know says that we're really you know we are currently approaching the year six thousand or so. That Yahusha showed up around the year four thousand, I think it was. Um, According to the 
Greek Septuagint, Yahusha showed up exactly in the year 5,500, which is what a lot of texts talk about, that he would show up in the year 5,500. Uh, I, I have several books that all say the same thing. And, and so I, I was just, I wrote this six, almost 60 pages, this, this whole thing I'm going to be presenting next week on trying to go through all these dates, hopefully I won't lose people, and show you that there's, you know, that this is paradox. The Greek Septuagint claims that um, it adds a thousand years leading up to the flood, and then another thousand years leading up to, a to Abraham, which is completely gutted out of the Hebrew Masoretic. So the big question people would ask is, did they add the years when they did the Septuagint? Or did they later take them away from the Hebrew? And I don't, I obviously wasn't there. I can't say either way. But my theory is that they actually took them away. And uh, they jumbled things around. I started finding some really interesting anomalies. I started finding that any time you have a, a date that has to be fixed, they're all the same. For example, uh, Abraham's father gave birth to Abraham when he was 70 years old. Every single text that I can find says that he was 70 years old. Uh, every text that I can find says Noah was exactly 600 years old when the floods came. However, and there's only a few of those. However, all the other texts will then jumble the numbers around. They'll just mix them up. And um, I, I think... My conclusion is that they, they couldn't get away with changing the date of Noah being 600 because there's too many texts that talk about it. And they, they, they're, they're trying to keep some things consistent. But whoever these scribes were, uh, whether it was angels that did it or men that did it, like Romans, Jesuits, uh, Benedictine monks, I don't know. I, I, my conclusion is that they're trying to scramble the timeline so that we don't know what hour we're living in. I find it completely ridiculous that these scribes could write Genesis, you know, Hebrew and translate it into Greek and get all the details correct, but the dates are all wrong. Like there, there's, there's something about that that is, is actually malicious. It, it, it's, it's not really checking out anymore with me. Like there's something happening. And uh, that's kind of a preview of next week. And I, I, I'm kind of really excited um, to, you know, to, to find all that out and, and so on and so forth. So to present that. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be really exciting because uh, I know, as you mentioned, that these dates are all scrambled around. So I'd really like to see what you come up with and uh, what that timeline may look like. That's exciting. <sighs> yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but as, well, you guys, you guys, you guys know my view that we're, you know, I'll, I'll give away the ending. Where, you know, I believe we're in the tenth week of Enoch of, of the ten weeks, um, the the very end of the end. But I do too. Yeah, it'll be a good. It'll be like I said. It'll be a good Thanksgiving episode. It'll be like a Twilight Zone episode. It'll be my marathon because it's 60 pages I have to get through. And I, I think I'll just start out on my phone from the beginning because I think that went better, right? I'm sounding good on my phone right now. Yes, you are. Okay. Yeah, right. really clear. Today's went pretty um, 30 pages plus. That went um, relatively fast. That's good because it started feeling really slow for me at the end there when I was like, 
you know, getting my nerves wrecked by not knowing if my voice was coming in clear or not. Well, I mean, that I guess that officially will just conclude it there. And with that, you know, I'm looking forward to the Sabbath going through uh, the Gospel of Johannine, the Hebrew Gospel of Johannine, chapters 4 and 5, and, uh, you know, being with Rob and Michael on that. And is there anything you guys want to... I'll just kind of be here to hang out and talk with you guys so you guys can talk away. Yeah, let's end it with a prayer. No, and then we can continue on. Thank you, Mike, for that. So I'll um, I'll go ahead and pray. Our dearest Father, Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, um, thank you for giving us your word. Um, thank you for all the different books that we call scripture that uh, we pray that we would seek them out to see if they are indeed true and not false. But I know that each of these books that are written, um, they have different implications and different uh, angles or looking at things, and it really makes us seek out your truth. And uh, I just pray that you would uh, reveal yourself and your mysteries, the, the mysteries of your kingdom to us in these books. And um, uh, pray all these things in, of course, your name and the name of your son, Husha Hamashiach, and uh, the Ruach Kadesh. Amen. Amen. I was curious, do we, after we go through um, John, is there a revelation in Hebrew? Yes, there is. But there is, but we don't, um, we know it, I know it exists. I believe it's in the Vatican vault and um, we do have the first three chapters that are like in like a library or something like that. And there is a translation you can read of it. And it's a really sloppy. It's not a very good translation. Like the, the translation that's done for the Hebrew gospels are really good. Like they read smooth, like butter. Um, and they just, they're very clear. They're doing a great job. The revelation that I read the first three chapters and Pamela read it as well. It's, it's not, it's just not very good. Uh, but I, I, I believe they exist. And, and by the way, it's 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 really odd that all these books keep coming out of the Vatican. Like really, it's really odd. Like archaeologists all the time they go and they find dinosaurs, you know, paleontologists and they'll find mummies and all these different things. And yet we have to wait for the Vatican to release, you know, like the release schedule. And it's really slow the release schedule. And I just think that this is another mud flood thing. Like my theory is that when the the resurrection saints uh, they picked up and left, uh, and the mud flood you know happened, that they basically carried their libraries with them. You know they they they, just, they got up and left, and to you know the, to the you know like we were like on the outer rim, you know, on the darker areas, and they went to wherever they're hanging out now, and and so it, it's it's almost like yeah, I don't know it's it's just. Somehow the Vatican just, you know, they were like the transitional government. They were the, you know, obviously the beast that rose again. But it's like we're just at their mercy. It's just incredible. It, it just, it seems to me that if the timeline were consistent, that there were literally 2,000 years as told to us, that we would have way more documents. We should have way more than what we're being shown. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you can't just destroy all these books. 
it doesn't make sense at all. I mean, if we should, yeah, we should have we should have Hebrew gospel. We should have the Hebrew revelations, and you know, it's like okay. So as we go through the study on on the Hebrew Gospel of John, the, the unfortunate thing about it is that it's only one text. It's one document. So I don't have ten other Hebrew Gospels of John to line them up and see if they compare and if they're, you know, they're all the same. Like that's that's the really hard thing about it. That there's only one. And there's there's no way there's just one. There's gotta be more. Yeah, there's gotta be more. And not not just that, I was reading through it and there is bias in the translation, as most translators uh I feel do. Uh and, and you'll you'll see it. I I know when it comes to the speaking about the Ruach. It does, like most of the text out there, translations, it'll say he. And that's when I went to Pamela to look into that Greek. And she did clarify it, that it's, it's, it's referring to the, the, the pronoun. Uh, and it should be she if, it is, if there is no noun reference to the, to the spirit, then it should be she and not he. And that's... Anyway, that that's what they they've done with that too. So, so you just got to keep that in consideration too. And it's like yeah. you said, it's the only copy that we have that's been translated. And depending on who translates it, is going to be the, you know, somewhat biased. Oh, so I'm glad you posted the um, the moon map here. And if if I'm looking at this correctly, where the United States is positioned in the state of Florida. Uh, if we go due east, uh, from you know, if I were to face the ocean and look straight east, that is where the direction of the unknown land and the, the, all these huge continents out there. Now, what's interesting about flight paths, as far as my knowledge goes, I've flown to Europe many times, and every single time you fly north, um, up you know, up towards kind of New York. And then kind of over the North Pole, um, kind of whereabouts, and then you you come down to Europe. Now you can see there that's a straight line on a AE map. Yeah. Uh, it, it always bothered me that you know back when I was a globe believer and I would w look on the charts and it looks like you're doing like kind of like the NASA the way the rockets go up and down. Like you would see this big like this half circle, like you're going way up and back down again. And I would always ask like. Why not just go straight to Europe? Why do we have to go up to the North Pole? And the only explanation I get from people is like, well, that's how it works on a globe, which is true. That's how it works on a globe. And of course, how it works on a flat Earth is that you go in a straight line. But the thing is, is that if you, what's interesting about that um, is that all the land, all the water leading up to uh, this land up there, I don't think any of that is traversed. And I, I, I get the feeling like, um, NASA goes because you know all international flight paths, all flight paths are are set by NASA. Most people don't know that. NASA goes out of their way to keep us as far away from that as possible. This is why you know. So I just wanted to point that out that there there's this land apparently up there and nobody. I mean, just nobody's going anywhere near it. That is true. I, I, no, I did have a, a clarifying question on what you read. And so uh, as I'm thinking about this, 
the city of Enoch is taken up before the flood. Then after the flood, Noah's build, Noah builds the altar of Adam on Mount Moriah. Is that correct? Uh, half correct. I believe that the – so when you read the city of Enoch being taken up in the writings of Abraham, it makes it sound on the surface like it was taken up before the flood. Um, and I have to read it again, but I believe that it was taken up before the creation of the world. Um, so and it, when you compare that with Second Baruch, it, it – Yahuwah, and I did a whole thing on it. I don't want to misquote it. I need to go back and look. But so uh, he tells Baruch how Adam saw the city of Jerusalem, uh, how Abraham and Moses saw it. And it, it, it basically it was this city of New Jerusalem, which is the same as city of Enoch or the city of Elohim, was on the earth at one time. But it was, I believe, before the creation of the world before the firmament was built. And that's why when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, that we are hoping to unite heaven and earth as it once was uh, before the beginning of time. But uh, yeah. that, that, I just wanted to yeah. clarify that, that. Yeah, thank you. I, I, it, it just brought back my memory on that. You are right. It, it was because what what was written uh, in the Targum is that the the people, the, the, the righteous before the flood they they were taken up to the city of Enoch, not not meaning that the city of Enoch was taken up, that mountain was taken up. So so you're right on that. Uh, but but my um, next question is after during Abraham when he's when he's setting up the altar and we read where Isaac and Jacob his whole altar piece uh, and him going to 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 the the mountain of Shem. Are you, are you, were you saying or did it say that that mountain where Shem resided, was that in paradise? I think you said you weren't quite clear on that. Uh, or was it just the Mount Moriah where he was residing? Okay, so we know that the school of Shem was there at Mount Moriah. It was somewhere on the whereabouts. So again, this is a this is a big mountain because we talk, we, we know that the city of Shalom was there. Uh, they, that seems to be the equivalent of of uh you know the school of shem was in the whereabouts of the city of shalom which was out on mount moriah which was separate from where uh the the sacrifice was happening but what i what i showed was is two i showed all the i compared all the text and they all agree that um that isaac went to, for three years with um into the uh to Shem's school. Right. However, it was um, let's see what what text did I read from that said he was carried by angels to paradise? And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And but I also sh showed in the writings of Abraham where it said that uh, it was actually Shem's um, school um, residence that was taken up to heaven. So I know this is kind of out there, but. You know, did did Shem now? Keep in mind, he's a Meshelzedek now. Okay, he's he's really he's no longer Shem. Like it seems like the references are like the person who uh, used to be Shem. That's Meshelzedek, and we're just telling you he's Shem. But this is Meshelzedek, and that kind of tells us, you know, that he's. Uh, I don't know. 
this is this is where it gets really trippy. Just so you know, I'm not sure that he's even still living at this point. Um, I, I think that he's similar to, to Enoch and that he's actually a Meshelzadek like an angel. That there's something very special about Shem as a as a Meshelzadek king. Um, I know most people wouldn't think that, but I kind of that is where my my uh, thought process is going, and I didn't mention that on purpose in the paper. But um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if 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 Isaac what the relationship exactly was with Paradise in this school at that point. I kind of feel like like Shem was going to both, like he had access to okay, both. So here's another thought: is that let's say uh, uh, the mountain where he resided, and he was able to go to uh, Paradise. Perhaps there was a, if you will, a stargate that he used to traverse, possibly, or if it was just a one-way thing, I don't know. But it makes me think about the Tower of, of Babel that they built to reach the heavens, and perhaps they knew that Shem could do so, and so they were trying to mimic uh, in building a large tower mountain, so to speak, and build a stargate up there to do the same or similar. Just a thought. No, that's absolutely correct. And as I mentioned, the Zuggernauts were just uh, mimicking mountains, right? And mm -hmm. and as Rob Skiba once said, it's not about height, right? Um, it it's I, I think I think that understanding the mountain of worship brings this into more clarity. Also, keep in mind a couple things. One is that if we want to take the writings of Abraham, Noah appears to Abraham long after he's dead, and he's come from paradise. Um, and secondly, uh, in, uh, in the book of Enoch at the very end, um, or maybe it's in the writing of Abraham too, but in the book of Enoch, when Lemek is, is freaked out, freaking out about, uh, his son Noah and, um, I'm sorry, Methuselah, Methuselah is freaked out, uh, freaking out about his, um, Lemek goes to Methuselah to, to complain because he's he's concerned that they're about to give birth to like a watcher's baby and methuselah goes to a very high mountain to see enoch i think this is the same mountain at the top of the mountain because yeah. keep in mind enoch is already ascended by this point so what in the world is he doing on a mountaintop um he's already gone off so he's so I think that there was an access point on top of this mountain, yeah. And I and I never even made the, um, that connection to, uh, after doing this research recently, I did not make that connection to the Tower of Babel. So thank you. That that's I think that's spot on. I think that's exactly, they were mimicking what Shim was doing at that time. I think that's spot on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would make total sense. In fact, uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, I need to read that again. I haven't read that in 20 years. But, you know, people, you know, feel that Gilgamesh is the same as Nimrod. And and I think that's true. I think that there was a Nimrod Gilgamesh that existed before the flood, who was a giant. And then there's the Nimrod Gilgamesh we see after the flood. But in that, the uh, Gilgamesh, he goes to a mountain to meet the survivor of the flood, uh, Noah. And he goes to this very high mountain to talk to him. And he appears in that scene and he recounts to him the flood. And so, you know, that's perhaps where Nimrod got the idea, right? To, to, to you know, enter paradise by the same way. Oh, yeah. By going and visiting him. 
Yeah, didn't we? Uh, isn't it in one of the the ancient books that we read is is exactly that where Nimrod goes to consult with and learns a few things, and it comes back and this is now teaching these things and and becoming a great person. Is that, that's kind of along the lines what what you were saying, right? Well, the writings of Abraham talk. It's that what you're referring to, where he has the, the 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 secret combination, and that the reason yeah. the, the reason that Yahuwah um, broke up the languages is so that they it could no longer be used. Yeah, yeah, and and it was information that uh, I believe Nimrod got from. I I think it was. Sh school that he attended for a short oh. while was it Nimrod or was it? I haven't read that. I don't know. Okay, I'd have to look at look it up again. But I, I recall something to that effect. So I would be really surprised if uh, Shem would enroll Nimrod in his school. Uh, to be honest, but that would <laughs> that would be a little surprising. Talk about you know a bad student, as Mister Miyagi says, no bad student, only bad teacher. Yeah. For some reason I'm thinking that it did happen when he was younger and then turned, but I'd have to reread. You know, it's interesting that uh, we see in, in Jasher that um, Isaac and Ishmael, uh, Abraham and Sarah wanted Ishmael to go to Shem's school. And he never went. The same thing happened now Isaac, who went to Shem's school, he wants Esau and Yaakov to go. And Yaakov goes, Esau does not. And again, like when we're, when we're thinking of Shem's school as just some academy, you know, like going to Harvard or Yale, it's like, okay, maybe that wasn't his cup of tea. But it, when you're making these connections again to its proximity to paradise, to the kingdom of heaven, you know, and, and Esau is just not interested. And Ishmael, who we read Ishmael later in life repented. Uh, he seems to have come around later in life uh, from what I've read. But they, they just they weren't interested. And that, that's like really shocking. Like, oh, my goodness, if I, could, if I could go, if you could point the way right now that I could journey there and I could just peer over the gate into paradise, you know, like, 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 you know, like what's stopping me, right? Yeah, I think I. I think what we do, well, what happens is we read where each one of these characters they they know what the school what's entailed in the school and they they don't they don't want to participate they don't want to be highest and righteous and be quote restricted. Um, I recall I recall some of the some of those readings that they they didn't find that appealing, so they did not want to participate. And now that got me thinking, I'd like to look it up, is did Esau sell his birthright to Yaakov before or after Yaakov went to Shem's school? At that time, it was, Shem was no longer uh, running it. I think it was Eber at that time. Um, but that, that has my interest now. Because we see in that, we see in that account that, you know, uh, he, he, in the, Aramaic Targum, it says that it, it, it was the same language that Cain said before he slew Abel, that he does not believe in the kingdom. And he sold his birthright because he doesn't even believe it anyways. Mm 
Well, does that not reflect on today? So it's been going since the beginning. Yeah, where's your faith? Right, and I've um, I, I insinuated that kind of at the beginning when you know all the people that are you know uh, squeezing the juice right now, and I've talked to so many people who they just like they they like they know what people are saying about it, but they're just like they're just like eh, yeah I'll just you know drink a little juice you know like it it, it doesn't. It's I don't know. It's just so tragic to see like people what people are literally the sin of Esau that he threw you know hit threw in the towel threw in his um, eternal inheritance and he said it was for right uh, for bread and a bowl of soup and that's you know that's what people are doing today like they're cashing in their inheritance they're trading it all in just to have convenience the guy told me today the guy who told me he went 20 years without sipping juice uh and he decided like uh he wasn't even into it but he's like yeah he said he wanted the world to go back to normal and he, he just thought that if he went in and did it that the world could go back to the way he wanted and i just thought that is so tragic you know um and yeah that people think so little of their soul of eternity or anything they just think so little of it they just they just care about this world and wanting to be in comfort and what they can get out of it it's tragic mm. well there's a lot of you quiet tonight i don't know if People are just like really sleeping, and they just leave their. Um, I never know. Sometimes there have been a couple. There have been a couple weeks where I wake up like at five in the morning, and I still see three or like two or three accounts open here. I'm like, hey, you guys fell asleep. You guys weren't talking all night. <laughs> Josh, what was your crazy question last week? Yeah, I think Josh can't talk. He's in company, so he's he can chat. Oh, he's in company. About if, oh, if Yahuwah can lose or be killed, I think that's a really interesting question. That's that's worth asking, and that you know that that kind of causes like uh, walls to come up. Like people aren't really shouldn't talk about that because it's like a lack of faith or something. Or, but you know the the Tower of Babel account seems to because we see that their their reason um you know the the their nimrod's people were divided up into three groups and they were all they all have their appointed thing one group was going to go place idols up in heaven um you know unclean things and then the other they were going to create a war party that they're going to kill the most high they were going to go up there and topple them and kill them and it was alarming enough that yahoo is like yeah, we got to put a stop to this because anything in their heart they can set to do. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the old questions that uh, back when I was a philosophy student, uh, I, I I need to point out that I never graduated from college. Uh, that was a good thing. I'm glad I never did. Uh, but it's because I became a, a, a photographer and that career took off. And I was like, why do I need to keep going to college if I'm, you know, whatever. But I was a philosophy major and I went to a lot of, you know, several classes. And that was always the question that was asked, you know, can, can God create a stone too big for him to pick up? And that's an unanswerable question. Um, 
but it's just one of those things. It's like, okay, what do I do with that? But it is interesting, the idea that, you know, Yahuwah clearly, he's putting us, like, he built this huge firmament. Actually, I think there's seven of them. But he built this huge firmament to keep us out. And then he's like, okay, if you're going to spend an eternity with me, like, I'm putting you down there in that realm. You're going to have to live your life and prove to me that you're capable of coming up here and getting along. Um I don't know, it, you know, like I can trust you. I can turn my back and you're not going to like, you know, take a knife into my back, right? Um, it, I don't know. It makes me wonder. I, I, I don't know. You know, I, it, I, I can't answer that question, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really fascinating question, I think. Or, okay, so yeah, as you said, and Yahuwah said, behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. And as we know, that's, that's what they want to do. They want to kill the Most High. I believe, um, I, the more I think about the globe deception, um, I really believe it's a post-mud flood thing. I know that there's Aristosthenes and a couple dudes in ancient history but I really believe the globe deception is brand new. Nobody believed it was a globe. I think it was all flat for everybody. And the reason, you know, that they created the globe was so that they can hide his story, the creator, where he is positioned on this earth in this realm. And their plan is, of course, to kill him. And as that's what we know, Satan's surrounding the camp of Yah. And that's the plan. Um, they they want to right so obviously I don't I don't think um, you know Yahusha is too worried about it or the Most High I think they've got it under control I do wonder though because you know after his uh, resurrection he showed his wounds to the disciples and apparently in his spiritual body uh, he decided to keep the wounds the nails in his in his hands and in his thigh and. Uh, you know, we we all we you know we all romanticize it. You know, like the song, the nails in his hands. You know, they tell us how much he you know he loves us. Um, my point is, is that he has these these mortal wounds, and I do have to wonder if um, there was a passage I read. Oh, you know, like um, which I think would have already happened at this point in history, but that, you know, that when the serpent, when he would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bite his heel, um, I kind of wonder if that means that when he came back to establish his kingdom and he destroyed Satan, and we went through that in my um, Odes of Solomon where I showed the passages in Second Baruch and compared them and stuff where he just, you know, ripped up the tree of the enemy and just uh, Satan was left and he threw him in prison and he destroyed the seed of the serpent but I can't help but wonder if when he came down on his assault that Satan was capable of bruising his heel like literally like he there was another wound that he had that we don't know about and that's just all speculation on my part I can't prove that until I see him physically and see like oh wow you've got some uh, you've got some war wounds there Yahusha like you 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 went into combat for us and you, you know, got some scars. Um, so that just kind of has my interest. And that's just all, I, you know, going back to your question, Josh, I, um, I do think about that stuff a lot. I don't, I don't know why anyone would think it's heresy to ask, um, you know, ask those questions. And the thing is, is that um, I, I, I get it that 
a lot of ministry leaders, there's a reason we all have our limits and our boundaries. I mean, I even have my limits that, you know, I'm not going to bring people on to my uh, website uh, to write articles and stuff who deny Messiah, right? Like, I, I, I have my limitations. But um, I think that what a lot of people in experience in ministry, and they've been they've been around the block a few times, they've seen the questions people ask, the avenues they pursue, and the fallouts. They're like, okay, if you're going to ask this question, nope, nope, we're not we're not talking about this. And it's it it might be fear on their part, but it might be wisdom too. And and um, you know, so I, I I do understand why a lot of ministries will shut down the conversation on some things. There's some things you immediately bring it up, and nope, nope, we're not talking about that. Um, but um, yeah, I I think that in my experience, when I have to really wrestle with things, it um it I and mean, ask some really hard questions. It has caused me to even if I don't answer the question, it has caused me to learn some things. Kind of like tonight, right? Like, if people listen to my presentation and they go, you know what, Noel, um, I don't accept the Aramaic Targum, right? I don't accept that book. But hopefully, they still learn something. Um, you know, when I when I when I'm going through my study that um, I'll be presenting next week and all the different dates that don't line up, like that's that could cause some people to fall away that could go like you know what none of those dates match up that's proof it's all fake i'm not following uh, and it, it's tough it's tough going through these things like a lot of these things you don't want to point out right but when i force myself to wrestle with this stuff a lot of times i just come up with material i'm like oh wow thank you yeah like i can't believe i found that that that's incredible that i'm seeing this like does anybody else see this right um so i i, I personally really like wrestling with those questions um one of those that i i brought up on sabbath uh, last sabbath that i am wrestling with um i'm not saying that it's yes or no but i am trying to understand what it means that my body is a temple all right. That again, that sounds like an oxymoron to a lot of people. It's like it's just a generic phrase, you know, like, you know, you'll hear like, you know, you know, people in the movie say my body is a temple or something like that. But I, I have a lot of questions about it. And I'm hoping um, as I delve into this, that I'll come out on the other end and I'll either say, yes, my body really is a temple. And I've learned some stuff that I never would have learned if I didn't wrestle with this. Or, no, my body's not a temple, right? So th those are my, you know, two things. But hopefully either way I'll be wiser and more knowledgeable about stuff.